Ernest, what's up? Look, I want to put you on to something that's been making waves in the personal finance world. If you've been relying on Mint to manage your finances, I got some news that might startle you at first. Mint is no more. But hold on, because every cloud has its silver lining. And in this case, that lining is Monarch Money. For those of us searching for a robust, user-friendly alternative, Monarch Money is stepping up to the plate. And from personal experience, it's hitting a home run. Let's get personal for a moment. Managing finances can be a maze of confusion, stress, and time consumption. Believe me, I've been there, jumping from one finance app to another, hoping to find that one platform that simplifies everything. Then came Monarch Money. Its ease of use, powerful features, and sleek design transformed my approach to managing finances. What truly sets Monarch apart for me, though, is its collaboration feature. With money being a top Discord trigger for many couples, the ability to seamlessly manage finances with my wife has been a game changer. No extra costs, just shared goals and clarity. But Monarch isn't just about managing your current finances, it's about building your future. Saving for that dream house, your wedding, or a once in a lifetime vacation becomes not just a possibility, but a reality with Monarch's intuitive tools. It's no wonder the Wall Street Journal held it as the best app for savings growth. Monarch Money represents the next evolution in personal finance apps. It's an ad-free haven where your experience is the priority, constantly refined based on real user feedback. It's everything we've been asking for, intuitive, powerful, and relentlessly focused on user satisfaction. Now, for a bit more practicality, Monarch makes transitioning from Mint a breeze ensuring you can bring all your tags and categories with you. It's intuitive design, customization options, and commitment to privacy and an ad-free experience make it stand out in the sea of competitors. Look, after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash leisure. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash leisure for your extended 30-day free trial. Earners, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. 
With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over here and start using it now. Earners, listen up. When people all around the world first started going out protesting this summer, you'd hear it over and over. This time is different. But how? And who are the people trying to make it different? In Gimlet's new podcast, Resistance, host Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr. brings us stories from the front lines of the movement for black lives told by the generation fighting for the change. It's a show about people refusing to accept things as they are and how we can make sure this time really is different. Resistance is out now. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Bag drop. Bag drop. <laughs> a mic drop. Bag drop. Bag drop. Today we're going to talk about appraisals, mm. right? Home appraisals, and we're going to attack it from a different standpoint. So there, I actually wrote a post about this on my Instagram page a while back. If anybody follows me, uh, so there was a recent study by the Bookings Institute in Gallup, which shows that homes in majority black neighborhoods are undervalued uh, during the appraisal process by forty-eight thousand dollars per home, mm. which amounts to one hundred and fifty-six billion dollars. Uh, and cumulative losses nationwide. So what happens is that they're saying that black homes are valued at 23% lower than the white counterparts. So obviously how they do that is that they base it like the same home, right? So it has to be like three bedroom, two bath, mm -hmm. home in a black neighborhood. three bedroom. Yeah, exactly. Comparable. What we call in the real estate industry comparables, right? So they're not going to compare a one bedroom apartment to a mansion. Right. They compare the same exact home, same exact space, backyard, all of that stuff. Yeah, within the same zip code. Most right. Times. So, so on average, the black home is valued at 48,000 less than the white home. So what happens is that now it affects people in a lot of different ways, right? Yeah. So now when... You have less uh, value when you sell your home, right? Mm -hmm. You're getting less money, mm -hmm. all right? You're also, it lowers your net worth, right? Yep. It lowers the, your equity that you can borrow from because the value of the home is less. So it's a lot of negative effects for that, right? So some people will say, okay, well, the reason that the black homes in, in the black neighborhoods are lower than white neighborhoods is because black neighborhoods, unfortunately, a lot of times you have higher crime rates. It sometimes maybe a longer commute, bad schools. Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff plays a factor in the home value, right? And that's true. But studies show that that only accounts for actually half of, of the devaluation. Yep. So what happened to the other $78 billion, right? So that only accounted for one $78 billion, but the other $78 billion is not accounted for in all those other factors. So this is what the study showed, not me. So... <laughs> The Booking Institute and the Gallup, they, they came to the conclusion that the other $78 billion in devaluation was solely due to one thing. You know what that one thing is? Go ahead, man. Tell me. Racism. Right? Oof. They just said that oh. they just valued black homes lower. Uh -huh. Right? When an appraiser comes, he just looks at a black home 
as being worth less than a white home. It's just that's what it is. That's what it that's what it accounted for, right? So this is a, a troubling statistic, right? For a lot of different reasons. But the main reason is that, you know, one of the things that, you know, you always taught in America is that you do good, you buy a home, you know, that's like the number one way to preserve wealth for your family, mm-hmm. do the right things, and you can sell your home. But now a, it's already discriminatory, discriminatory practices in actually buying a home, yeah. right? That's been proven. Yeah. And now, even if you do buy the home, it's devalued just right. because you live in it, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was interesting when I wrote that story because a lot of people were going back and forth like, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> it's like, you know, a lot of people don't believe that racism is actually real. It's right? a real thing. But the thing about it is that it doesn't even affect people just in black neighborhoods, it yeah. can affect a white, a black family living in a white neighborhood, oh, right? You don't say. So, as I said, so a lot of times people were saying, like, this is just made up. I don't believe it. Yeah. So now, being that we have a personal story to confirm it, yeah. you're going to go into your story. Yeah. You know what? When you wrote the article, and I had no idea you were writing the article, I thought you were writing it about me. I, I honestly was like, yo, this guy just wrote my story. And I called you. I'm like, yo. You serious? And you're like, nah, this is like factual news. This is, this is the evidence. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really happening. So uh, two two years ago, a little, almost about two years ago, um, I was in the process of buying a home. And that conversation, I, I, let's go back. I wasn't going to be in the process if it wasn't for you. Um, and that was part of the Earn Your Leisure conversation. Um, my family was about to uh, move and you were like, hey, why don't you go in and buy the home? And I was like, I had not given any thought. I'm like, you know what, maybe, maybe Rashad, maybe I should do this. Um, so you sparked that in, in my mind. I'm like, all right, well, I presented the proposal to uh, my family, and they were like, let's do this. And one of the things we had to do was get the house appraised. Now, my family bought the home in 2010, and um, the house was valued at 575000 That's what it was valued at. Uh, we bought it for 525000 That was the purchase price in 2010. Um, long story short, um, part of my family wanted to move to another area. So I came in and, uh, went in on a deal with my, my father and, uh, we got the house and the process of appraisal was an alarming one because when he, the appraisal, I won't say his name. We're actually still in there. We wrote a consumer reports review about it. Um, the appraisal man came in and said that the house had devalued. Now, we have added things to the home, you know, the typical things, obviously, stainless steel furniture, I mean, stainless steel appliances, wood floors, all, all the things that you would add to, you know, increase value in your home. And in the eight-year pro- eight period, the house went from being purchased at 525000 to now being 510000 So, all right. So, you bought a house in New York. In New York. In the suburbs of New York, Westchester, which is anybody's not familiar. It's an affluent, pretty affluent neighborhood. White Plains, New York. Okay, to be exact. so you buy a house for 500 and how much? 525,000 2010. 2010. Yeah. Seven years where there's no market correction. Real estate has only gone up right. in New York and across America as a whole, but definitely and in New York. And especially in this neighborhood. Okay. You made improvements to, you made improvements to the home. Mm-hmm. And he said that the home was devalued by 15,000? Uh, 15,000, yeah. So, like, when you look at that, it's like, oh, wait, that, that's kind of crazy. But then you look at the comparables because that's part of the appraisal process, too. 
Um, so I looked at the comparables, 600, 650, 618. I, um, I, we had an offer on the table. Like my, my brother was going to sell the house um, before I stepped in. And the offer was for 600, 600,000. And, and you got appraised at 510,000. And uh, what do your neighbors look like? Um, my neighbors um, are from a different, different ethnic background. What They're, ethnic background are they from? Um, we have Hispanic neighbors. We have um, white neighbors. Um, we have a few black uh, neighbors down the street. The majority street. of people in your neighborhood, what are they? Are white. Majority of them. Okay. Yeah. So the comparables in the neighborhood is 600,000. 600 plus, at least. Um, so the, the deal was time sensitive. So not only did I, I was like blown away by the, the number that came back, I knew that we had to react fast because um, there was a lot of dominoes that were going to fall if we didn't get this done. So he came in and, and gave us a 510000 appraisal. But on top of it, I had to pay him $800 to him to do that. So like not only was it injustice and a disservice, but I had to pay him out of my pocket to say thank you. He came in, he was here for maybe 10 minutes and left. And that was the last time I, I saw him until he, I had to you know get in contact with him. Like, how did this happen? And you know his ex- explanation was um, pretty much you don't have uh, the size of a backyard as, as your, the comparables. So I was like, no, this is this impossible. I literally drove around the neighborhood to the comparables. I'm like, no, this is no way, no way. And being that my the the process of getting the house was time sensitive, I just had to say, you know what, I'm just gonna have to take this one, and then we'll deal with this at a later time. My mortgage broker at the time was like, you know, I don't believe this. This is crazy. But at, at a certain extent, you're at the bank's mercy, right? Like they're the one that's approving you for the loan. They send their appraisal, the the, the person that do the appraisal. So it's like, what do you do? So like, at that point in time, he took ninety thousand off the table of wealth, right, from your family. Pretty much, yeah. With, uh, just his opinion. Yeah, and the, and that's the thing. It's like a lot of people don't get to this level to even see this type of discrimination, right? Because how many people are in the position to even get a home? You know what I mean? And it's like, I can tell this story, but it's like, who else can relate to this? Because like I said, when you wrote it, I was like, wait, you're writing my story. And you're like, no, this is happening everywhere. And I'm like, oh, oh, now I have to take action. So I, I have taken some actions, and it's, it's still... You know what's pending. crazy? Somebody said on my Instagram that um, she told the story. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to give her the benefit down and say it's true. So she said that she had a home appraised three times. Mm-hmm. And each time, let's say it was 300000 roughly. I forget the number, but let's say 300000 She It was like solid 300000 three times in a row. Yeah. She had a, her white neighbor come for the fourth appraisal. She took down all the pictures... And the white neighbor answered the door. Long story short, the appraiser thought that it was a white neighbor's home. You know how much it was appraised for? Four hundred. Think like four ten, like one hundred ten thousand dollars more. Just on an opinion. Just because he saw a white person. Yeah. It happens. Look, I'm li- like we're literally. I lived it, and I'm still living it. It's like wow. And I try to get that message out, like yo, this is happening. But like I said, like who can relate to it? Like a lot of my my peers are, you know, are renting, and they're not in the process of, of owning a home yet, and they will be. But it's like yo, this is how how is this possible? So like, what would be the answer to eliminate that? 
Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, do we have to get our own independent appraiser? Yeah, but that independent appraiser doesn't necessarily work for the bank who's giving you the loan. So it's like, what do you do? Yeah, it was an interesting discussion on my Instagram page because then some appraisers came in. We was actually hoping to get somebody, an appraiser, to come in as a guest, but we wasn't able to. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a... It's, I don't know. It's an unfortunate situation that just stuff like that people don't even aren't even really even thinking about, right? Like you hear about like the hardcore racism stuff, but yeah. little stuff like that. That's real wealth. That's that. So your ninety. So your situation was ninety thousand dollars, right? Right. So now you can see how when you hear about one hundred fifty six billion, like that's a large number. But how many people are like you? Ninety thousand here, hundred thousand here, right. thirty thousand. It adds up. It adds up. Yeah. Adds up. Right. And like you said, like that's part of that generational wealth. Like, and that's, that's not even a black neighborhood. Right, <laughs> right. It just was that, hey, they saw the family that was here, and this is what we're saying it is, and take it or leave it. And if you leave it, then you, you're not going to get this loan because we're not approving you for this loan. Hmm. Yep, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the game is rigged. <laughs> All right, boys and girls. So now is my favorite part of the show, story time. All right, so this, this story actually starts as a lesson plan. And one of the things we do in the summer is teach financial literacy. And I was listening to Reasonable Doubt that President's Tube was on, and I heard the, the line, uh, all black sky is sports and entertainment until we even, and it just stuck with me. And I was like, damn, is this true? Like, is Jay right? Like, is he right when he says that? Like, what does that even mean? And I started thinking about success and what images we think of when we think of success. And over and over, I kept saying, wow. Yeah, entertainment. Damn. Yep. Sports. Okay. So when we uh, sat down with our kids, uh, I came up with this idea to, you know what, give them eight pictures of celebrities. And lo and behold, they could name all eight. All eight. They were eight for eight. And the celebrities, I believe, were Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, Beyonce, Floyd Mayweather was on there, Puff was on there. And it was like, all right, well, they know all of those. And then I gave them another sheet with eight pictures and... I asked them to name them, and they got one out of the eight, and the one person was Oprah Winfrey. And I told them that the interesting thing is that you recognized every celebrity, but you only knew one of the wealthiest people of color in the world. And their minds were blown. And I was like, well, this is why, right? Because all we've been, we see is sports and entertainment. So we went to the number one person, the wealthiest black person or person of color in the entire world. Well, black person, not even person of color. African descent. Af African descent. Um, and we came to the name Aliko Dangoti. Aliko Dangoti, uh, he's actually from Nigeria. Um, and his net worth this year, well, in 2018, was $10.7 billion. Um, you want to go into it? Yeah, so Aliko Dangoti. We, we wanted to cover him for a few different reasons, but... Shout out to Africa. We have a lot of listeners in Africa and the UK and all over. And, um, you know, obviously we live in America. So most of our stories are based off of Americans. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're bigger than just America. Right. We're, you know, the, the, the world, as I always say, the world is flat. So we want to show love to every part of the world and to give inspiration to every part of the world as well. Right. So as you said, the richest black person in the world, African descent, whatever you want to call it, is from Nigeria, mm -hmm. right? He's worth $10 billion. So we're going to tell his story. Um, so, because I'm pretty sure that most people aren't familiar with him. Yeah, I mean, every time I've brought him up in conversation, people will say, who is that? And it's, it's ironic. Like, we know who Floyd Mayweather is, and we know who Jay-Z and, and 
Congrats. I mean, they've had a huge amount of success. But those three people, their net worth doesn't even add up to his. No, it's not even close. So, all right. So, Aliko, he, um, he comes from Nigeria, right? And he, uh, he starts in 21 um, in the concrete business. Yes. So, he comes from a wealthy family already. Yeah. Nowhere near where he is now. Right. But um, he comes from a wealthy family. Yeah, so and that's, no, that's another thing, too, we have to keep in mind. Because even with the whole thing with Kylie Jenner, as far as what's self-made, that's, that was big on the page. And um, we have to keep in mind that there are black wealthy people. Right. right? Like, like his grandfather was wealthy. The wealthiest grand- person in West Africa, I believe. Yeah. So, um, and there's nothing wrong with... We have to get out of that mind. Like, there's nothing to be embarrassed about if, you're, if your family has money. Right? That's what we should strive to do, to <laughs> actually leave a legacy for our kids. And it's like we, we almost like are embarrassed if, if we have any leg up. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's kind of backwards way of thinking. But so, yeah, he comes from a wealthy family, um, but nowhere near where he is now. So yeah. at 21, he starts a concrete business, yeah. right? And from there, it's a $5,000 loan that he got from his uncle. Yeah. To start the business. From there, he parlayed that into pretty much everything pick, in pick Nigeria. It, yeah. pick, pick, Agriculture, uh, food, telecommunications. Banking, petroleum. Banking, petroleum. Sugar, flour. Sugar, flour, everything. He's <laughs> Salt. Like, the guy's got his hands in everything. Yeah. Everything in the country is pretty much he's involved with right. in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. He's heavy in politics, everything, right? So what he's doing now is that he is taking a major... Risk, but that's what business is, is about, right? Mm-hmm. He's taking a major risk in building a twelve billion dollar petroleum refinery. Yes, right in yeah. in Nigeria. So, so, so just a quick a couple things about Nigeria. Um, Nigeria is Africa's largest oil producer. Um, so that's just the first thing. Now they have they control of I think the tenth largest oil reserves in the country. Oh, and I'm sorry, in the world. In the world. In the world. So, but they don't, their, uh, their resources, not their resources, but they don't have refineries that are efficient enough to get it throughout the entire country. Yeah, so the thing about Nigeria is that they have the 10th largest oil reserve, like you said, mm-hmm. in the world. But they only have four state-run refineries, and those are old. So what happens is that they have to import most of their petroleum, mm-hmm. which makes no sense, right? Because you have so much petroleum in your backyard, literally, yeah. but you have to import it because you don't, you don't have the infrastructure to actually produce it yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's his thing. His thing is like, why do, we, why do we have to bring in all of this stuff from the Middle East and all these other different countries mm-hmm. when we have it right here? So he's building a $12 billion refinery, and what that will do is make it, well, A, it's going to be the largest petroleum refinery in, in the, the world. world. Yeah, In the world. He, anyway. I literally, he went out and... This is built on wasteland. So, he, I mean, again, his business helps with this process, right? Because he has the concrete and he, he has the trucks and he has all these things to help build it. So he's building it right now. Um, I believe it's off the south coast of Nigeria. But, yeah, like, let's build this refinery because there's no point of us ex- um, importing anymore. Right. So that's going to take, if all goes well. So right now his company made $4 billion in, in revenue last yeah. year. If all goes well, that's going to take it from his company from four billion to thirty billion. Yeah. So the the, the key part about that is that sixty percent of Nigeria, right, is not they're not connected to the power grid. Sixty percent, and when the people who are, they have like four hours of power at a time. So there's like long history of blackouts in the country. 
So he has a chance to provide electricity now to an entire country. Yeah, well, yes, he has a chance to change the course of Nigeria forever. Forever. And also change the course of Africa as well. The entire continent. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So what he's doing is more than just money, right? Mm -hmm. He has actually a chance to really leave a, a legacy forever when it comes to Africa. And then, of course, money plays a part as well. As I said, it takes his company from $4 billion to $30 billion. So yeah. now he's... he's a billionaire now. I yeah. think he was like number hundred on the list. Yeah, he he he. I think his highest uh, rank on the list was like twenty five. He was up to like twenty, but twenty five billion. Fell, yeah, then, a couple of things that so happened. Stocks. What this fell. does now, this puts him in like the top twenty now. Yeah. Like now he's in there with Bloomberg and and guys like that, right? Yeah. So that changed the, the trajectory of wealth as well. But as I said, more importantly, like you said, sixty percent of the country doesn't have electricity. Um, they're the tenth largest oil producing country but they have to import all their oil yeah. so they make themselves reliant they can keep all their resources at yeah. home now and it sets a trend for west africa and, and the whole sub-saharan africa mm -hmm. as a whole right because we all know that africa is the richest continent as far as minerals mm -hmm. and what's in the earth but unfortunately it's the poorest continent economically right right so hopefully this will be a trend that countries can follow and businessmen in the countries can follow where now the wealth is actually kept in Africa yeah. and they're producing for themselves and they're keeping it for themselves. Right. Yeah. Well, so there's two sides to every story. Right. So a lot of people aren't big fans of his because they said that, um, you know, he he uh, has a lot of money offshore. Yeah. And some shaky business practices. Some political Pays scandal. off politicians. Right. Uh, so his wealth, right? And when we look at our country and we think of uh, the, the wealthiest people in the world and we know that 1% of the population has more money than 99%. So his statistic is even larger because, yes, I think 50% of the country does live in poverty and you have now a man who's in the top 100 wealthiest people in the world. So the disparity is even greater. So people are looking at that like... But that's not just his... I mean, look at Carlos Slim right, in another, Mexico. Right, another person. Or look at... His Plillion of billionaires in India or even America, right? Mm -hmm. There's so that's all over the world. Yeah. But um, like I said, there's you know there's there's some some rumors that you know he's done some things, which I mean most business people have on a certain level, yeah. right? But then he also has a charity where he's donated one point two billion dollars of his own wealth. Yeah, I believe him and Bill Gates are, are, are doing. Well, he's doing some stuff with Bill, Bill Gates, Gates as well. Right. But then he also built two hundred homes for poor people. Yeah. So and he and he said his favorite. So he. For the first 20 years of business, so he, he started his company, I believe, in 1977. First 20 years of business, refused to travel. Yeah. Did not travel and, at and, all. And, yeah, and that's interesting. No vacation. So that's because that goes back to the college and everything, right? Where yeah. it's okay, you start with money. Obviously, if you start with money, you have a leg up. It's obvious, right? Mm -hmm. But you still have to work the money to make it more money. So the guy didn't take a vacation for 20 years. 20 years. It took him, now he takes <laughs> vacation now. But for the first 20 yeah. years in business, he didn't take a vacation. His ratio now is for every two weeks he works, he takes a vacation. We, I gotta get, we have to get to that ratio. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing but ratio. It's like how many people take vacations just because yeah. and shouldn't be. You can't afford it, right? They, you 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 have no money and you're still taking vacations just for the hell of it. You go to Miami just just cause. It's funny you said Miami because when he said the two favorite places to travel, Atlanta and Miami. <laughs> Atlanta and Miami. That's pretty random. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you. Yeah. If I'm the one of the richest people in the world, I love Miami. Yeah. I love Atlanta too. Those would not be my two top travel destinations. Well, where, where are you coming from, though? You're coming from New York. It doesn't matter where I'm coming from. Well, somebody who's in Nigeria, they may look at that as like, that's a tourist destination. I and mean, we do it like pretty regularly. 
Shout out to Atlanta. 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 Shout out to Miami, too. Yeah. It's just a little random for me. That's all. <laughs> but, yeah, those are his two favorite. He actually owns a lot of property in Atlanta. Yeah. He, he, he um, I think he had a, a residency out there. But now I think he's staying at some, like, luxurious, like, resort there now. Like, yeah. So, I mean, the guy, he's balling out of control. But the thing yeah. about it also is that, so there's flip sides to every coin, right? So some people say he's a bad guy. Some people say he's a good guy. I learned that life is complicated, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was in Colombia, I went to Colombia a little while ago, and obviously when you think of Colombia, who do you think of? Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. He's a legend. So everybody knows Pablo Escobar's story. I don't have to tell a story. Half of the country hates him, despises him, and half of the country loves him, right? So depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different story. Yeah. So. If you talk to some of the people that he might be responsible for killing and you know ruining lives and all these things, then they would yeah. tell you that he's the devil. He's the worst person in the world. Yeah. But then I went to a community. I forget what it's called, but it's Pablo Escobar community where he built, I think, like 300 homes for poor people, right? Mm-hmm. And he built the whole community. He built the hospital. He built the homes, restaurants, grocery stores, everything. He literally built the community for poor people. And everybody lived rent-free. Everybody had a home. Yeah, They got murals of them. On the wall. To this day, they still got murals of him. Like, he's he's a saint, right? So, yeah. life is complicated, right? Yeah. And depending on who you ask opinion, you're going to get a completely different answer. Yeah, so there was, the, in, the, in the part where uh, he's building the refinery, there was some, some, some negative press where people had lived near the land and... He came in. He cleared off the cleared land. Cleared the land off. So that's the. So that's the. So and yeah. didn't, didn't provide homes or didn't so, provide so, anything. So they said he cleared off the land yeah. to make room. But then he built 200 homes for poor, for poor people. Yeah. So it's like... And his thing is like he doesn't even want to be remembered as the wealthiest person of African descent. He'd rather be known as a philanthropist. And that's honorable. Like He just wants to be the person that has given back. And he has a chance to. Like what we said, if you think about it, like his country relies on imports. He has a chance to reverse their entire trajectory and be a country that is pretty much making their revenue from exporting their resources. So that's, I mean... No, it's a good story. And then... It's amazing. Uh, also, it's, it's just, you know, we like to highlight business people and we want to give people inspiration and hope and just, just different figures, right? Like, we yeah. all know who Warren Buffett is. We know who Bill Gates is. Yeah. So why should we not know who he is, right? right. Like, I, I doubt, and I'm pretty, I mean, I work in schools. This is, his name is never being brought up. At, at any school. But there's a bunch of people. Been. We got Robert Smith, right. who's the richest... Black American, he's a billionaire, and a lot of people don't know who he yeah, is. They have well, Rob Johnson before him, and he wasn't brought up. But even Rob Johnson, he's still in sports entertainment on a certain level. But right. Robert Smith is in private equity, so we're going to try to highlight different people from different walks of life, but business in particular, because I think it's important for people to to see these people and to just know about them. You don't yeah. have to be a fan of them or not. But at least you should be aware of it. Yeah, the power of presence and the power of see- perception. It's like, I, at least I've seen somebody who can do as doing this. It's powerful. If we've never seen that, like, then we may aspire to be um, an athlete or somebody in entertainment. It's like, oh, wait, there's somebody doing something else in this avenue? Oh, I can do this too, right? So the power of just seeing yourself in somebody who's successful, is, it's, you, you can't measure it. No, you can't. And once again, shout out to Africa. Uh... South Africa to Nigeria, Ghana, um, Ethiopia, Somalia, all of that. Egypt. Egypt. Uh, we're going to go to Africa 
very soon. I have, unfortunately, I have not been to Africa yet. I've been a lot of different places, but I have not been to Africa. So that's on my to-do list. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm very excited. And uh, yeah, we're going to get out there for sure. Absolutely. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs>